Let's open our Bibles together to the book of Romans, chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, and I'm going to read and preach verse 9 through verse 13 this morning. The Apostle Paul, the human author of this particular letter, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the divine author, is continuing to drive home the point that God's promises never fail. God's promises never fail. As he said in verse 6 that we looked at last Sunday, it is not as though the word of God has failed. The word of God meaning the promise of God made in the Old Testament that he would save his people, the Israelites. That word, that promise has not failed. Even though many Israelites rejected the Messiah, the Savior, God is keeping his promise by saving many Gentiles and grafting them into the olive tree of Israel. And he is keeping his promise by saving a remnant of ethnic Israelites by enabling them to turn from their sin and to trust in the Savior, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And last time, Paul made the point that not all who are descended from Israel physically also belong to Israel spiritually. That's actually been the case from the beginning, as we saw last time. Not all who are children of Abraham are also children of God. Not all who are children of the flesh are also children of the promise, to use the language of the previous verses. There's a spiritual Israel within physical Israel. There's an invisible church within the visible church. And that is according to God's plan and purpose, so that his purpose of election by grace would stand. And this morning, Paul's going to illustrate that point by talking about the promise God made about Sarah, Abraham's wife, and then by talking about the promise he made to Rebecca, Isaac's wife. And as I said, he's driving home this point that God's promises never fail, and God's purpose in election will stand forever. And there's a lot that God has put into these verses for our spiritual benefit, so let's pray and ask for his help, and then we'll dig in. Let's pray. Our God, we pray that you would help us now as we come again to your word this morning. We are weak and we need your strength. We are easily distracted and we need your help to focus. We want to learn and grow in our knowledge of you and our knowledge of your word. And ultimately, we want to see more of Christ. So would you open our eyes now, open the eyes of our hearts, and give us everything we need to receive your word with gladness and with humility. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Romans chapter nine, reading verse nine, down through verse 13. This is God's word. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. As I said, we'll look first at the promise regarding Sarah in verse 9. 
and then at the promise to Rebekah in verses 10 through 13. And again, Paul's illustrating the fact that not all who are descended from Israel physically also belong to Israel spiritually, and ultimately it is God's election by grace that makes the difference. Look again at verse 9. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. Back up in verse 7, Paul had just mentioned that God told Abraham, through Isaac shall your offspring be named, not through Ishmael, but through Isaac. And then in verse 8, he refers to the children of the promise. And now what he's doing in verse 9 is he's stating the content of that promise regarding Isaac. For this is what the promise said About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son, shall have Isaac. So verse 7 mentions Isaac, verse 8 refers to the children of the promise, and then verse 9 gives the content of the promise regarding Isaac. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. That's what Philip read for us earlier in the service. And if you would, I'd like you to turn back to Genesis chapter 18 for just a moment. I want to look again at Genesis 18 in context so that we can see this promise in its context. So Genesis chapter 18, starting at verse 10, and I'll read down through verse 14. So just the last part of the scripture reading for this morning. Genesis 18, verse 10. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Two things here. First, in verse 14 there, God says this wonderful line, is anything too hard for the Lord? It's a rhetorical question that will only take no for an answer. Is anything too hard for the Lord? No, nothing is too hard for the Lord. Nothing is too hard for God because God is omnipotent. That is, he is all-powerful. He is omni-all, potent, powerful. He's all-powerful. He is the almighty, so nothing is too difficult for him. He can bless a 100-year-old husband and a 90-year-old wife with a child so that his promise and his purpose could be fulfilled. The good news is that he is still omnipotent today the answer to the question is anything too hard for the Lord is still the same today no nothing is too hard for the Lord no prayer request is too difficult for the Lord to answer no unbelieving heart is too hard for the Lord to soften no marriage problem is too hard for the Lord to solve No health issue is too hard for the Lord to heal or to help. 
No financial difficulty is too hard for the Lord to provide for. No temptation is too hard for the Lord to conquer. No sorrow is too difficult for the Lord to comfort. Nothing, nothing is too difficult for God, for the Almighty. If God can make heaven and earth, he can help you and me with our problems. Psalm 121 reminds us, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. Take that to heart this morning. A second thing I want to point out here, God made this promise to Abraham regarding Sarah back in Romans 9. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And I think we're so used to God making promises in the Bible that it can be easy for us to overlook the fact that it is simply astounding that God would make a promise to sinners like us. When you think about how big God is and how small we are, so kids, think about that. God is so big and we are so small. God is as big as the whole ocean, even bigger. And we, we are like a tiny little cup of water, like one of those little cups of water you get by the new water fountain out there. It's a little cup. God is like the sun, and we are like a tiny little period, a tiny little dot on your sermon notes page. And God is holy, and we are sinful. God is like a pure mountain stream of water, crystal clear, and we are like a muddy, grimy, little puddle and when you think about how big and holy God is and how small and sinful we are it is amazing it is astounding that God would make promises to us that such a God would make such promises to such as us about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son that's what he told Abraham And as you look at those words in verse 9, notice the words, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. If you're a Bible underliner, you might want to underline the words will and shall. Anytime God says, I will or I shall, we can count on him to come through. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son would encourage you to be on the lookout for the I wills and the I shalls in the Bible. In your daily Bible reading or in family worship, here at church in the scripture readings, God is gracious to make promises to us and he is faithful to fulfill them. So that's the promise regarding Sarah in verse nine. Let's look now at the promise to Rebecca our second main point in verse 10 and down through verse 13. The promise to Rebecca. Paul begins verse 10 with the phrase, and not only so, and not only so. That is, not only verse 9, and the distinction made there between Isaac and Ishmael, where the promise focused on Isaac and not Ishmael, 
Again, showing that not all the children of Abraham are also children of the promise. Not only that, Paul says, but even more so, verse 10 and following, which is about the distinction between Jacob and Esau. And this second illustration is even more significant, not just because of what Paul says about God's purpose of election and all those other things, but also because the illustration closes a loophole in the first illustration. William Hendrickson explains this in his commentary on Romans. He says, one might be tempted to argue that the reason why the line of the covenant ran through Isaac and not through Ishmael was that Isaac's mother was Sarah, but Ishmael's mother was Sarah's Egyptian slave handmaid, Hagar. Jacob and Esau, however, not only had the same father, but also the same mother and were conceived at the same moment. See what he's saying there? Isaac and Ishmael both had a Jewish father, but only Isaac had a Jewish mother. Ishmael had an Egyptian mother. So perhaps that's why the line of the covenant ran through Isaac and not through Ishmael. But Paul closes that loophole by illustrating the same truth in the case of Jacob and Esau, who both had a Jewish father and a Jewish mother. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. Now, just as a brief side note here, perhaps you noticed this already, but notice it says that Rebecca conceived children. And it says, though they were not yet born. They, as in Jacob and Esau, these children in the womb. As Christians, we believe that life begins at conception because that's what the Bible indicates in various places. We believe that what's in the womb of a pregnant mother is a child. A woman conceives a child or children in the case of Rebecca here. It was Jacob and it was Esau in her womb. And the wording of these verses indicate that. When Rebecca had conceived children, though they were not yet born. Now what Paul does in the rest of the passage is he focuses on what God said to Rebecca about her children, about her twin boys, and he focuses on the reason God said what he said, which was so that his purpose of election might continue, might stand. So first, what did God say to Rebecca about her boys? We read in verse 12, She was told, the older will serve the younger. Now, if you don't know, that was backwards compared to the normal practice of the day. The normal practice of the day was that the younger would serve the older. The older of the two boys, Esau in this case, the firstborn, would have special rights and special privileges as the firstborn. But as you'll recall, he sold his birthright to Jacob, and then later the blessing of the firstborn was pronounced on Jacob instead of Esau. So Jacob, in God's providence, got both the birthright and the blessing instead of Esau. The older served the younger in that sense. And then verse 13, 
provides further confirmation of what God had said. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. He's quoting Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. And he's saying that God, as one author put it, had set his covenant affection on Jacob and withheld it from Esau. He'd set his covenant affection on Jacob and withheld it from Esau. God chose Jacob but rejected Esau. God predestined Jacob but passed over Esau. Even though Esau was born to Isaac and Rebekah just like his twin brother Jacob was, even though Esau was a child of Abraham, sadly he was not a child of God. He was a child of the flesh, but he wasn't also a child of the promise. Now, in terms of the reason God said this to Rebekah, the reason was so that God's purpose of election might continue, might stand. Election that is not based on our works, but on God's grace and purpose and calling. Paul says three things in verse 11 there. First, he says, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. So God's promise predated both their birth and their deeds. Calls to mind the fact that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, as it says in Ephesians chapter 1. He didn't choose us after we had lived many years and shown him that we were worthy of being chosen. No, he chose us before we were born. He chose us long before we were born. He chose us, in fact, before anyone was born. He chose us before the universe was even born. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have put your trust and your faith in him alone for your salvation, if you traced your salvation all the way back to its source, you followed the stream all the way back to the spring, what you'd find there would not be your works. What you'd find there would not even be your faith. What you'd find there would be God's gracious choice of you in Christ. What started the train moving down the track was not your works or even your faith. It was God's purpose of election. It was God's mercy and grace and goodness that he chose to show you in Christ. Ephesians 1 again, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. The second thing Paul says in verse 11 is in order that God's purpose of election might continue. So the deciding factor is not our descent, but God's decree. Even though both Jacob and Esau shared the same descent, God's purpose of election was displayed in the fact that he chose Jacob as the child of promise. God's purpose of election is what will continue. It is what will stand. Psalm 33, verses 8 through 11 says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. 
Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. The counsel of the Lord is what is ultimate in this universe. The plans of his heart are the plans that will be carried out. Proverbs 19, 21, from the front of your bulletin. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. One more, Isaiah chapter 14, verse 24. The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. God is immutable, unchangeable. And his purpose will stand. His plan will come to pass. We can make plans. We do make plans. We put things on our calendar. But it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And we can take great comfort in that truth, can't we? We don't have to be worried about the future because God holds the future. We don't have to be anxious about what's going to happen because what God has planned to happen is what's going to happen. Even if what he has planned is hard and painful, as it sometimes is, we can trust him because we know he's good and wise and he will work all things for our good and for his glory. The third thing Paul says in verse 11 is there at the end of the verse. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. The difference maker between Jacob and Esau was not Jacob, it was God. It was not because of Jacob and his works, it was because of God and his call of Jacob. The reference to call here is to effectual calling or the effective call of God that we've thought about many times already in the book of Romans. It's where God calls us to himself in salvation, not just by the external call of the gospel when someone shares the gospel with us, but also by the internal call of the Holy Spirit who regenerates our dead hearts and enables us to respond to the external call in repentance and faith for salvation. The external call is an invitation. The internal call is a summons from God. The external call is heard by the ear. The internal call by the heart. The external call is where the sower sows the seed of the gospel. The internal call is where the spirit softens the soil so that it can receive the seed, so that the seed of the gospel can take root in the heart and germinate in repentance and faith. We're not saved by works. We're saved by God's call. In ourselves, we are dead in our sins and we cannot claw our way out of the grave. God has to call us out like he did with Lazarus. Lazarus, come forth in the dead man rose. 
God has to give us new life, and then we're able to respond in repentance and faith for salvation. So our salvation depends on God's election and God's call. It does not depend on us. 2 Timothy 1.9, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. We don't know why God chose us, but we know it wasn't because of our works. It was because of his own purpose and grace. It wasn't random. It was on purpose. It was according to his purpose. It wasn't because of anything in us. It was because of his grace. We don't know why God didn't choose others, but we know he's just and righteous in all he does. And nobody deserves to be chosen. We know that. We know we deserve God's wrath. All of us do. But God has chosen to pour out his mercy on us, just like he chose to pour out his mercy on Jacob so that his purpose of election might continue, so that his purpose of election might stand. As we wrap this up and bring this together, I'd like to take the last few minutes, uh, like we did last time, to read a few paragraphs from the Westminster Confession of Faith on election. If you take out your hymnal, it's on page 850. It's chapter 3, of the Westminster Confession of Faith, of God's eternal decree, page 850. This is an excellent summary of what the Bible teaches about God's eternal decree, God's plan, God's predestination, God's election of his people. And I'll start reading at paragraph three of chapter three on page 850. By the decree of God, for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestinated unto everlasting life, and others foreordained to everlasting death. Paul talks about that later in Romans 9. And this is focusing on God's decree. This is focusing on divine sovereignty. This does not cancel out human responsibility. Divine sovereignty, human responsibility. We are responsible for our actions and for our choices. We know that. And if someone rebels against God and rejects his gospel, they deserve everlasting death. That's looking at it from below, if you will, through the lens of human responsibility. But it is also true, and that's what this paragraph is affirming, that they were foreordained to everlasting death. That's looking at it from above, through the lens of divine sovereignty. Of course, we should look at these things, these deep things, through both lenses together, because both are taught in Scripture, divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Skip down to paragraph 5. Those of mankind that are predestinated unto life, God, before the foundation of the world was laid, according to his eternal and immutable purpose and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will, hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory out of his mere free grace and love 
without any foresight of faith or good works or perseverance in either of them or any other thing in the creature as conditions or causes moving him thereunto and all to the praise of his glorious grace. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, not because of anything in us that he looked ahead and saw. He didn't see anything in us that moved him to choose us. Rather, he chose us by his grace and for the glory of his grace. Paragraph six. As God hath appointed the elect unto glory, so hath he, by the eternal and most free purpose of his will, foreordained all the means thereunto. Wherefore, they who are elected, being fallen in Adam, are redeemed by Christ, are effectually called unto faith in Christ by his Spirit working in due season, are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by his power through faith unto salvation. Neither are any other redeemed by Christ, effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved, but the elect only. God has ordained the end that we would be in glory forever, and he has also ordained the means to that end, all of them. All those links in the golden chain of salvation from Romans 8. He's ordained that we would make it one day to the celestial city. And he's also ordained every single step of our journey along the way. Everything that happens today, everything that will happen tomorrow, everything that will happen on all the tomorrows until the day of Christ's return. Paragraph 7. And this one is the heaviest. The rest of mankind, God was pleased according to the unsearchable counsel of his own will, whereby he extendeth or withholdeth mercy as he pleaseth for the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures to pass by and to ordain them to dishonor and wrath for their sin to the praise of his glorious justice. The rest of mankind, God passed by in terms of his eternal decree. And notice that it says he ordained them to dishonor and wrath for their sin. To the praise of his glorious justice. So this is just, even if we can't fully understand it. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Abraham said later in Genesis 18, verse 25. Deuteronomy 32, 4. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Election is to the praise of God's glorious grace. Reprobation is to the praise of God's glorious justice. Those who are saved have only God to thank. Those who are judged have only themselves to blame. Again, we have to keep both divine sovereignty and human responsibility in view. 
from above and from below. And we don't need to get all tangled up in thoughts about whether or not we are elect. The Bible doesn't encourage us to ponder whether or not we are elect. It encourages us to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ in simple faith. And then to live for Christ by the enabling grace of the Spirit. And in so doing, we make our calling and election sure. We don't cause our calling or bring about our election, but we show that we have in fact been elected and called. We see fruit and evidence of the fact that God has indeed chosen us and called us to himself by his grace. Finally, paragraph eight. The doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care that men attending the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience thereunto may from the certainty of their effectual vocation or calling be assured of their eternal election. So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. And that is the note I want to end on this morning. If you have questions about these things, please feel free to come and talk to me. This is the high mystery of predestination, as it says in this paragraph, but it is what is taught in the Bible, and it is meant ultimately for our abundant consolation, our comfort in Christ. But it is a hard doctrine to grapple with, so please come and talk if you have questions. But I want to note, end on this note uh, this morning that paragraph eight strikes. This doctrine, this biblical teaching, even if there's some mystery to it, even if we have perhaps lingering questions at times, it's supposed to lead us to praise of God because he is the one who saves us from start to finish. It'll lead to reverence and admiration of God for the marvelous wisdom and perfect justice of his plan of salvation and judgment. It'll produce humility in us knowing that we are who we are, not because of us, but because of God. It'll produce diligence in us, not laziness or license, but a real desire to live for Christ in our lives, who loved us and gave himself for us according to the plan and purpose of his Father. And finally, it gives us abundant consolation because we know that come what may, God's purpose of election will stand. And no matter how hard the journey, his grace will lead us home. Let's pray together. God, we thank you and we praise you for these deep truths. And we do pray that they would produce in us all these things more and more by the powerful working of your spirit in our hearts. Please continue to lead us and guide us as we learn these things together from Romans 9. And we thank you for your grace and for your purpose of election that will stand. 
We pray in Jesus' name, amen.